be seated. While you're sitting down, I uh, want you to take your Bibles out and turn to Judges, or not Judges, Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3, right after Judges. Ruth chapter 3, in a moment I'm going to read the whole chapter of Ruth chapter 3 as we continue our series rooted in redemption, making our way through the book of Ruth. We've got three more, three more sermons in this series before we start our summer series. And uh, we're, I'm excited to open God's word with you today. If this is your first time here, my name is Colby. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. We're glad that you've joined us on this Memorial Day weekend. If you're joining us online, we welcome you uh, as well. Hopefully you've had a chance to open your Bible and get ready to read along with me. I'm going to read the whole chapter beginning in verse 1, Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi... Her mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your wisdom and help as we study your word today. Lord, we pray that you not only would allow us to understand these things, things that are distant from us culturally, but Lord, that we might see a glimpse of your loving kindness for us through them. That your spirit might revive faith in our hearts 
Give us confidence to rest and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I asked Annie out at least five times before she said yes. It was uh, over like 18 months. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this, where you kept asking something, right, and uh, got mowed down heartlessly. That was supposed to be funny. But if that wasn't enough, in the end, I had to ask her dad twice for the blessing of marrying her. We were in Wisconsin last week. Um, I appreciate the prayers as I led a funeral for her uncle. And uh, while there, just kind of out of the blue, her dad reminded me of that fateful day, the first time I called to ask if they would give their blessing for Annie and I to get married. And his answer was basically, I like you, but not now. And that was, that was terrifying. I can remember it vividly. It's one of the most vivid memories of my life. I was in the computer lab. This was probably 21 years ago, kind of this time of year. And um, we, were, we were in the computer lab at Liberty, and I was talking to my friend Philip Dunn, and we were, we were I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go back to the room. It's too far to drive to Wisconsin. I need to ask her, like, next week. And, uh, you know, I, and I'm going to make the phone call. And I went back and I locked myself in the room to make sure none of my crazy roommates would come in and disrupt the moment. And I picked up the phone and he was on a trip. He reminded me he was in Las Vegas in a hotel room. And um, that's where the conversation happened for about two hours. It was, it was long. I mean, I asked, he said, well, let me talk to you about my plans for my daughter. And uh, after two hours, he was like, Let, maybe we could talk about this again some other time. And I just gave up, you know. But I don't know if you've ever been in a position where you had to make a, a significant ask about something where that really required you to put yourself out there. But that's what we see happening in this passage today, isn't it? Here in chapter 3, we witness the proposal in this relationship. And if you notice, this proposal doesn't go down along entirely traditional lines. <laughs> in fact, it's incredibly non-traditional. It breaks all the rules, all the boxes, culturally, customarily. But ultimately, it leads to the experience of God's redeeming love for Naomi and for Ruth. I think it's purposeful that it goes down this way. God ordained it so that we could see in it a picture of his redeeming love that breaks the boundaries that we often have put it in as we labor to trust in him and believe his heart for us. And so it fits that we would see such a non-traditional proposal. Throughout the book of Ruth so far, we've continued to see that God has provided for Naomi. All the way back in first chapter 1, when she came back to Bethlehem after being through famine and losing her husband, she believed she was empty, but the Lord moved Ruth to care for her, and she returned with her mother-in-law, and although, although Naomi considered herself empty-handed as she returned, we could see what she couldn't see, that God had given her Ruth as a faithful companion. Well... 
We know that as a result of the unfaithfulness of her whole family, she experienced this suffering and loss in Moab. But even here, the Lord didn't leave her empty and sent Ruth with her. But do you remember Naomi's perspective at the end of chapter 1, verse 21? I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. For the whole series, we've been asking, did the Lord really bring her back empty? Would she remain empty? Was there any hope for a woman who had been ravaged by loss, by the effects of their sinful choices, by the difficulties of life in a broken world, who felt empty? Was there any hope for her to experience fullness at the hands of a God of loving kindness? That's the question the book's been asking. asking. And as she returned to Bethlehem, we saw last time we studied out of Ruth in, in the words of chapter 2. As she returned to Bethlehem, they were seeking refuge under the wings of the Lord. It was an act of faith and it was an act of repentance to return to Bethlehem. And immediately we get two scenes in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that show that God was not finished providing for these people. That his loving kindness was available to them and that in returning and entrusting themselves under the wings of God's faithfulness they could move from famine to fullness so Ruth 2 and 3 really this chapter that we just read and the one before it they actually if you look closely they have the same pattern and they show us the same thing they show us God bringing this family from famine to fullness through inviting them to have faith in him and the way that he accomplishes that is through providing a redeemer. Now that word redeemer, we're used to, if you've sort of been in church for a while, and because of the way the New Testament uses it to speak of Jesus, we've filled it up with lots of theological meaning. But that theological meaning of Jesus is rooted in a deeper culture and history and pattern. A redeemer was someone who acted on behalf of the family to buy something important back that had been lost. And so, through the provision of a Redeemer, God shows His loving kindness and brings them from famine to fullness. That, we saw glimpses of it in chapter 2, as Ruth, in faith, goes out into the fields to glean. And there God shows favor, and she comes into the field of Boaz, a close relative of her father-in-law, who makes sure that she is protected. And she goes home with an abundant harvest, one that begins to show Naomi that the Lord hasn't really abandoned them. And so what's amazing is, where Ruth shows faith at the beginning of chapter 2, Naomi shows faith at the beginning of chapter 3, and we see God continue to show that this wasn't just a one-time thing. He intended to permanently care for them as they even trusted themselves to Him. So in this passage, we're going to see two things. We're going to see that in order to bring them from famine to fullness, God provides redeeming love that goes beyond the law. The first thing we're going to see is that God provides redeeming love that goes beyond the, beyond the law. The second thing we'll see is that God moves us from famine to fullness through acts of faith. So two simple things. The first one is going to be the longest. Let's jump down into it. God provides redeeming love that goes beyond the law. This is what's going on in the story. This is kind of the story that all the details are trying to tell us. Now, the Old Testament law was an important part of Jewish life and tradition. 
It was given by God through Moses as a way of giving the promise and covenant that they would be his people. But for many of them, they, they began to just see the law as, as a, a way in which they, as the primary way in which they related to God. And as soon as they failed and as they walked away from the Lord, it was, the question was, what would God do? Is there any hope for redemption when people have realized that they had forfeited what God had promised? And so this book, the book of Ruth, is really helping us see the heart of God. Now the way it does it in, in this particular chapter is it shows the, shows the heart of God through the relationship of Ruth and Boaz. Now each of the actions, what I want you to notice, and I'm going to point it out as we go, we're going to try to unpack a little bit of the cultural backgrounds today. And so we're going to dig a little bit into the details of the story. But each of the actions that Ruth takes and that Boaz takes, they pursue a direction that the Old Testament law pointed to. A, a direction of redemption, a way in which God had written redemption into the culture of the Old Testament law. A way that people could know that they weren't without hope. But in pursuing this, Ruth and Boaz are not obligated parties, they're doing it freely. Let me show you what I mean. They do so of people, there's two types of legal codes that come into play in this situation. I'm going to tell you about them. The law of leveret marriage and the law of laws of redemption. So in Deuteronomy chapter 25, you don't need to turn there, I'm just going to describe it, but you can read it for yourself. We find the law of leveret marriage. It gave an obligation to some and pointed to an opportunity for others. An obligation, what kind of obligation? Well, the word leveret literally means brother-in-law. Now it's hard for us to wrap our heads around how important land and family inheritances were in the Jewish culture, but this law is built into all of that. The Leverett marriage law ensured that the bulk of an inheritance stayed within the family, particularly the land, even if the husband died without a son. It's a law for a widow who doesn't have a son to make sure the name is carried on and to make sure the land isn't just divided up and dispersed and she has no future for her family. It's also a way of keeping the family line. This is, what it, this is what it did. It may sound odd to us, but it was about preserving a name and an inheritance and family lines and people whom God had promised through Abraham to keep redemptive promises to. This is how it worked. Deuteronomy 25 says that a brother who still dwelt in a family estate and we would have older brothers when the, the old, when, when the husband would die, an older brother would be the inheritor. But sometimes that older brother would be married and their spouse would pass away and there would be other brothers who were still living off the benefits of that estate. They hadn't received their inheritances yet. And now, with the death of that person, the whole inheritance was in danger. It could be split up, spread out to people. And, and so... What would happen is it was an obligation of a brother who was single to marry the widow so that the family line and inheritance could continue through them. And the, any, the oldest son produced through that sort of marriage would be the primary inheritor who would carry on grandpa and father's name down through and could receive legally, could receive the land and keep it. So... There was an obligation then to marry the widow if there was a son who was still in the estate. 
Now, if that wasn't the case, others in the extended family could act as a leveret, a kinsman redeemer, someone who was willing to marry and care for that woman and also raise up a son for that family line. And the inheritance would go to that son from that, from, from that family line, while his own children, the one who had, had the kinsman redeemer, additional sons, would be his own inherited line. So really what he was doing was deciding to have a son that would represent a close kinsman. Now, it's hard for us to make sense of that all, why it would matter, isn't it? Like, couldn't they just pass things along? But you got to remember, you know, our culture is 2,000 years removed and all sorts of reasons and purposes and patterns away from this. And if we're going to understand why this is significant, we have to understand how things worked. This is how they made these decisions. Others in the extended family, as I said, could act as a leveret, and the son of that marriage would receive the inheritance, but you weren't obligated to do it. So Boaz falls into the category where he could do something redemptive for this family, but he's not obligated. That's important, because we see then he's going to act sacrificially on behalf of the family to raise up a son to care for Naomi, and to pass on Elimelech, her dead husband's family line, and to make sure that this family continued now in doing so that means his first son would receive that inheritance and he wouldn't yet have anything to any way to pass on his own inheritance yet and so it was there was sort of a risk involved in doing it and so it was sacrificial to do it he wasn't obligated to do it but the question in this passage is is he going to be willing to do it so it was within the spirit of the law But not the letter for Boaz to do this good thing. He could marry Ruth, raise up a son for the family. Now, that was all tied into laws of redemption. Found in Leviticus 25, there were also laws concerning regaining land that had been formerly sold because of hardship. We know that this family actually abandoned their lands. Went down into Moab for at least 10 years. That land got split up, used by family members. Any number of things could have happened to it. But God had given instructions about the way that that land really belonged to him and was on lease. He owned the land. He gave it to the people of Israel as an inheritance. It was a gift. Land wasn't something you owned and lorded over. You stewarded it as a gift from God. Because of that, he instructed that this land was was to be apportioned out to the people of Israel and remain in the family as it properly passed on in an inheritance. Every 50 years was a year of jubilee. Kind of a, maybe you've never heard about this. But that year of jubilee meant that all land went back, back rightfully to the erring family, even if it had been sold off for hardship. So you can imagine a situation where somebody sells off a piece of land because they needed to survive. Well, at the 50-year year of Jubilee, it would go back to that family. Now, along the way, if there were still 25 years to that and there was a need for redeeming this family, this family couldn't build their life back. They had, you know, they had sold off their land. A near kinsman could actually come along, purchase the land, and give it back to them. He might gain some benefit from it, but he would pay for the remaining years to the year of Jubilee, and it was called redeeming the land. They could do this for land, but also people had sold themselves into indentured servitude. So they could be bought back out of slavery by a willing relative who was willing before the year of Jubilee to bring them out 
of that servitude. Those were laws of redemption. So here at work in this passage is a question. Is Boaz willing to be the redeemer who buys back the land at cost to himself to grant to this family? And is he willing to marry Ruth to raise up a son for Naomi's line? That's the question that's on the table. That's why they, why you, what's behind everything that's going on. And we see, interestingly, that Ruth has no obligation to do this for Naomi because she's a Moabite woman. She, she's not an Israelite. She's come back to this land, but she trusts in God. And she entrusts herself to the law. And she goes and she is willing to put herself out there to see this executed. So we see two things then. We see this redeeming love kind of displayed, this redemptive work displayed through Ruth and through Boaz. First we see it through Ruth as she executes a better plan than Naomi initiates. Ruth executes a better plan than Naomi initiates. Verse 1 to 5 show Naomi putting together a plan. Did you, did you pick up on that? The plan actually represents the first time we see a kernel of faith in Naomi. Notice the season of harvest is coming to an end and out of concern to find Ruth some rest, meaning a good long-term situation. She says, let's not forget about Boaz. Now, the harvest is gone. Like, the harvest is done. They're at the time of threshing where they're going to they're gonna actually turn it into a useful product. So that just means that the time is short and coming where they're not going to see Boaz all that much. Ruth isn't going to have a reason to. And Naomi has got, finally she's got some hope. She, she's sort of reading what's going on between Boaz and Ruth and have seen this and she says, you know, he's eligible. I mean, I think, I think you got to get into the story a little bit. This isn't just sort of wooden. Verse 2, is not Boaz our kinsman? A relative with whose young women you were? Haven't you been seeing him? Talks about an opportunity, right? Tonight he's going to be threshing. It would be an open occasion for a private conversation. The way the threshing went, you know, they'd bring it outside the city to these areas where there was strong breezes. And they would set up these kind of hardened floors where they would throw the wheat and grain. They would stomp it out. And they would crush it, and then they would throw it up in the air so the light chaff would blow away. And they would do that in the evening, and they would work hard and finish up that day, and they would often eat out there and rest out there and get up and do it on another day. And they're, they're working all the time, and they're kind of away from the city, right? There's a private moment coming up, and it's dark. Uh, so, you know, Naomi's saying, maybe go out for a visit. Have a conversation. Then she says, put on a nice dress and some perfume and go out and see Boaz. Now that may not seem all that significant, but what's going on there is these are widows. Culturally, they've been wearing a widow's clothes. And she's saying, take off your widow's clothes. Make sure Boaz knows that your time of mourning is over. Put some perfume on while you're at it. Right? It's practical, right? I mean, this is just practical. She's a smart woman. Wait until he's had something to eat. You know, you don't want to find a cranky man, right? He's resting. But listen to this plan, you know. He says, pay attention to where he lies down. You don't want to get the wrong guy. And, uh, and 
uncover his feet and just lay there and wait to see what happens. I mean, what could go wrong, right? Sounds like a great plan. What could go wrong? I have four daughters. Everything could go wrong. This is not a good plan, all right? So just in case you were wondering, is this good marriage advice? Is this good dating advice? No, this isn't dating advice. This is a couple ladies who had no way, actually, for a marriage to be arranged, taking a really big risk because they got a sense that God was doing something. And that's really what you ought to see here. Whether it's a good plan, and I would say Naomi's got some problems with the plan. She's actually asking Ruth to do something incredibly risky. This is, there's a lot about this plan you can criticize. It's risky, and it is. Like, in case you were like, I feel uncomfortable with what's happening here. That you should. It's risque. It's both. Now, the, interestingly, the passage goes out of its way to show us the integrity of Ruth and Boaz. And you read this because she's, this is a forward action. You know, laying down at someone's feet in the middle of the night with perfume on and looking good is, is something that actually happened regularly at the threshing floor. She's, she's asking Ruth to go into a dangerous situation where she could be misunderstood, humiliated. But see, she believes there might be something that God is doing through Boaz, and Boaz is an honorable man. Whatever, the, this is what I think is amazing. Whatever the plan lacked in quality, Ruth makes up for with her incredible character. Because she follows Naomi's advice in every part except for one. Six through nine shows us that she does this very thing. She goes out, she watches, she gets up there, and she lays at his feet. And at midnight he wakes up. And if you remember Naomi's advice, Naomi's advice was, he'll know what to do. But you notice Ruth, you know, she says, just in case you're not sure what's going on here. She looks at him and he says, who is it? And she says, it's Ruth, your servant. Bring me, spread your wing over me. This is kind of the language. Now that sounds interesting, right? He says, verse 9, look at it closely. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. We know from Ezekiel 16 and other cultural backgrounds that this is, this is a request for marriage. To spread the wing over, to bring under the corner of the garment is a way of saying what belongs to me now covers you. It is an expression of commitment. God used it for his own commitment to the people of Israel. And so what she does is says, in case you got any ideas about what's going on here, I am here because I want you to marry me. I mean, just, just for a minute, just think about this crazy faith that Ruth has, who's willing to make herself vulnerable and as a servant go into that situation and, and bring about an act, take the risk to see redemption take place for Naomi and her family, certainly for Ruth as well. But actually, the way that, the way that um, Boaz responds tells us actually that Naomi has, or Ruth has done something here that is incredibly honorable on behalf of Naomi. She could have gone and found a spouse any other way. Like she could have found a younger man, he says in the passage. Could have gone running after someone else. If it was just about Ruth securing her future, Ruth could have been capable of that. We get the sense that all the, he says all the others in town know that you're a worthy woman. An expression about her character, her hard work, most likely. The way she had honored Naomi. 
even though she's a Moabite, she has got people's attention. So instead of waiting for Boaz, she makes her intentions clear. And that phrase, spread your wings, you know, it's significant in two ways. One, because it's a common Hebrew phrase for marriage. But second, because it's the language of commitment that Boaz used in chapter 2. It's as though they had this private conversation where he says, you've come and you've returned and, and put your hopes under the wings of Yahweh. And this is kind of the way that she does it. She goes and she uses that same language and she says, in order to be under the wings of Yahweh, why don't you take us under your wings? <laughs> Go ahead and put your faith into action <laughs> and be the redeemer. Be the provider. It's a pretty wild story, isn't it? When you think about it. So, the response of Boaz tells us something actually about Ruth's character as well. We don't know much about Boaz's situation, but he praises her in a way that acknowledges she could have gone after other options, done it some other way to secure it for her. But she's concerned about the bigger picture. And she's concerned about Naomi and concerned about the inheritance of Elimelech. Now, Boaz responds. Boaz could have, there's a lot of things that could have happened here. But Boaz delivers a better promise than Naomi deserved. <laughs> so, you know, in this, in this situation, Ruth has gone out. It's a complicated proposal. But Boaz responds with incredible character. The, the response of Boaz is not to be missed. It's obvious he admires Ruth, isn't it? You see that in here. He praises her again. He considers it a kindness that she's bestowed on him and done this for Naomi. He says known to be a worthy woman, and it seems that he considers himself a bit on the old side. <laughs> He's like, you got other options, and I'm old, and uh, you could have gone any other route, but he praises her character. And here is his act of faithfulness. Rather than just taking advantage of this situation, he acts in faithfulness by removing the barriers of the law that would keep them apart. Inside the context, the way he responds is an act of faithfulness to God and faithfulness to Ruth. He says to her very clearly, I am willing. You know, right away, I'm willing to be a redeemer. You're right. He says, may the Lord bless you. He wants God's blessing over her life. He understands her intentions. And instead of taking advantage of a very vulnerable situation, he's concerned about the Lord's blessing being brought into her life. And this is a beautiful picture of the two of them. He says, I will be a redeemer, but I have to do it the right way. It, it, it's this, there's this sense in which, you know, don't miss the fact that there is some romance in this story. There's a real longing and a love. Boaz admires her. He actually puts himself out there and says, I want to do this. I want to be a redeemer, but I can't do it unless I address the legal requirements. And there's another person who has the right to the land and the opportunity. I have to do it the right way. I want to honor the Lord, and I want to honor you. I will go tomorrow, he says, and I will deal with the fact that there's another person who has the right to redeem the land. Now listen, here's what I want you to not miss. Back to our main point. Boaz is not obligated to do any of this. What we see here is a picture of loving kindness from Boaz. He's taking risks. He's associating himself with a Moabite woman. He's going to take this private moment, and he's going to turn it into a public declaration. He's going to be willing to put his commitment on the line, marry this woman 
propose to marry the woman even if he loses out on the opportunity? I mean, there's a lot going on here. He now will have to bring that out into public view in front of the the leaders of the community. He could be disappointed. There's also a factor here that maybe you haven't thought of. We know that previously Ruth had been married 10 years without a child. So there's no, there's no promise that there's going to be an inheritor. And that there's going to be flourishing and blessing in this promise. But he makes a promise. He makes a promise to pursue her redemption by fulfilling what the law requires and going beyond it out of loving kindness with no obligation. See, he's not pressed to do this. But he looks at this situation and he says, I'm willing to go beyond. Now let's move beyond just this relationship for a moment because this is in the Bible for a reason. It's not just a story. The book of Ruth isn't just telling us a story about Boaz and Ruth. It's actually showing us the heart of God. What's going on here is something important. What is God saying through this to the wayward people of Israel? The people who have gone down into Moab. The people who have left faithfulness. Who have been unfaithful to God and are wondering, what, what is it like to return to the Lord? What will it be like if I come home? What if I turn from my sin and I go seek shelter under the wings of Jehovah? What will it be like for them? What is he saying to a group of people who had endlessly gone down to Moab and it's God's for help? What is he saying to people who felt the sting of sin's destruction over their lives and thought they had no hope? And and because of that, what is he saying to us? What does he want us to see about his loving kindness through this story? Because we're the reader who's going, what is God like? Because God is commandeering all of this, bringing all of this together, and he's communicating to Israel, this is in God's word for this purpose, to say this to us, that God's loving kindness transcends the obligations of the law to bring redemption and fullness to our lives. If you need hope today, you need to hear this. You need to hear that the heart of God is for you. That his loving kindness means that when you return in faith, you return to a God who is willing to bring you from famine to fullness. Who doesn't just let the the ravages of sin destroy your life, but is willing to bring you under his care and bring you on to the fullness of eternal life, abundant life, and through faith in Christ. God's loving kindness has gone beyond the law. It's not just in the story of Ruth and Boaz, but this is a small picture of what God would ultimately do in Christ. From every angle, we just see the Christian hope of the gospel and God's loving kindness coming through in these terms. Philippians 2, you can see the picture through Ruth of what Jesus is like as a servant. Jesus comes in the form of a servant, makes himself of no reputation, offers himself up for us, even going to the cross so that we might be redeemed and share in his exaltation. He had a reputation, but he set it aside for us. Romans 8, God's love outdoes the justice of the law. Where our, our lives and our sin deserved God's justice, God goes beyond the law in what we deserve to provide redemption and hope for us through Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation? Well, the law requires that we be condemned because of our sin. But God's love His loving kindness goes beyond the law to offer redemption to those who 
come to him for rest. How does he do it? There's, he says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. That's redemption language. He's redeemed you from the law of sin and death. What the law says you deserve, God counteracts by his loving kindness. God overcomes by his own life at his own cost. And in the words of Paul, the next verse, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. See, redemption is always about God doing what the law could not accomplish. What the law can't accomplish in your life because of our weakness of flesh and our sin and bringing us into the abundance of God. You will never earn your way into the blessing of God. God did that for you through Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is seen so clearly here as we understand that God goes beyond the law to provide redemption and fullness for us. And where Ruth had to take some risks, and Boaz had to pay at some cost. Jesus gave everything. The loving kindness of God provides redemption that goes beyond and overcomes the law for us. That's the gospel. If you've never understood how it is that we could have hope for our future, hope for eternity, a relationship with God, it's because this is the God we serve. This is the God who comes to us and has given us a redeemer. In Jesus Christ. You can know that Redeemer. You can return to him if you've wondered, is it worth it? This story is to tell you, yes, it's worth it. Will he receive me? Yes, he will receive me. Because through Christ, there's no condemnation that remains. And so we see as a second point and as we close that God moves us then. From famine to fullness through faith. I want you to remember here at the beginning of chapter 3. That it's Naomi that takes the initiative this time. I think, I think we're to understand that it's actually a pretty weak plan. <laughs> but it's the best she understood how to go for it at the time. And even with that weak step of faith, God meets it with fullness. God uses this step of faith which... Ruth joined in to deliver a sense of fullness to Naomi. It'd be easy to see this as a chapter about Ruth and Boaz, but I want you to notice that it starts with Naomi and ends with Naomi. So often in this book, there's this amazing thing happening. Naomi is the beneficiary of the faithfulness of Ruth and Boaz. It's Naomi who was dead and empty. <laughs> It's Naomi who had lost everything, who was bitter with God. And for just a moment now, she's got some faith. And now God is saying, even on that small faith of trusting in me, I'm going to deliver my fullness to you. Because it's the power of God's loving kindness that promises our salvation, not the power of our faith. You may consider yourself of weak faith, but bring that weak faith to God. Act on it and entrust yourself to him and see how God brings you from famine to fullness. Even your weak faith in the hands of God is able to bring you out of the worst situation and promises an eternity of fullness. I love, I love the way this passage ends. Notice Boaz takes care of Ruth in the morning, sends her home with six measures of barley, right? Six is significant here. It's the number of incompleteness. It's a promise yet unfulfilled. 
I'll give you six because seven is the number of perfection or completeness culturally in Hebrew terms in the Old Testament. He sends his six because there's more to deliver on the promise. He has to go. He's going to have to go in the next chapter and arrange for this situation to be true. But he sends six loads with her. These six measures of grain would have weighed 70 to 90 pounds. Now, I don't know if you've thought about that, but Ruth is a young woman. 70, 90 pounds is, is a heavy, heavy load of grain. He takes the cloak, would have been an outer cloak, it was, who knows how cold it was through the night, and he fills it up with this grain, up to 70 to 90 pounds, and somehow she carries it. I, I would have wondered, except for when I was in Nepal like six years ago, uh, we were hiking around these mountain trails, and every now and then we would pass these young women who would be carrying these huge loads of grass and grain. And they were heavy. You could see that they were heavy. And, and they, these young women were like 90 pounds. And uh, they were sitting down, laughing along the road, watching us foolish people with our backpacks. And, and so we started talking with uh, a few of them. And they said, you want to try to carry it? And I couldn't do it. Like, I get that up on my, you know, I could not do it. And they were in like Walmart flip-flops, literally like walking around the rocky mountain paths with these. This is a heavy load. 70 to 90 pounds, especially of grain. I mean, this is an abundance. But what do they mean? They have a meaning in this passage, actually. It's a message. It's a message to Naomi. Look what it says in verse 17. Ruth explains the message. These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now let's think about that in the context of the book of Ruth. Chapter 1, Naomi, tragic situation, has come home empty. And so that she doesn't miss who has delivered her. I've come home empty because the hand of the Lord is against me. That was her theology. I've come home empty. Now we said she couldn't see the abundance of what God was still providing for her. And sending Ruth home. But through Boaz, the Lord delivers a message to Naomi and says, You're not going home empty-handed. Tell that woman I haven't forgotten her. She can trust me. And she comes in with this load of grain. And it's a message to Naomi from the God of loving kindness. You've come home and I've got what you need to provide. Not just for a season. Not just for a lifetime, but a promise of eternity that I yet will fulfill to you. You are not empty. But grace. It's a little bit of faith. One step. And God's loving kindness is so ready to meet her with this kind of promise. It's a hope bigger than she could have imagined, but this is just the beginning. It's not over. There's a seventh measure of God's completed goodness yet to come, and she sees it. Just think of the transformation that she's been through. At the end, she says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. Now, you know, when you read that at the end, it's just sort of like, oh, okay, she says something's going to happen. No, this is expectancy. 
she sees the Lord's provision. She knows God has shown his loving kindness to them. God loves to stir up faith in us when we think we're in the midst of famine so that we can know through faith in him he will care for us and bring us into the promise of his fullness. Undeservedly, our future hope is bright. No matter where you are right now, no matter what you've been through, no matter how full your life feels or doesn't feel right now, through faith in Christ, you have the promise of fullness, promise of provision, that he'll walk through the difficult moments of this life, but oh, there's yet a day, there's a seventh measure coming. There's a day when he will bring the fullness of his promises and we will gather around the table and we'll enjoy the bread of his grain harvest and we will feast and we'll be secure and he will bring us to a wedding feast <laughs> where we belong. And so today as we end our service, we take a promised picture of that in the broken bread in the cup every time we take communion it's saying i get i'm waiting for that seventh measure <laughs> because this is just a part of it and it's just a small portion the lord is my portion and one day i'll know his fullness is complete i invite you today from wherever you're at in your life to trust the fullness of god through the promise of the lord jesus christ and as we take the lord's supper to be reminded that promise is secured by the blood of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for this picture of redeeming kindness. Lord, we pray as we remember it, you would stir us up in the different ways in our life to trust in you. That you'd be honored through our faith. You would strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.